0: Welcome to Christian Impact, impacting your life with spiritual truth. I am Dr. Kelly Blanton, and I'm sharing practical truths in the Bible that can truly change your life. Today is February 14th, 2024. We continue our series for the year, Kingdom Legacy. We are in the Song of Solomon, Chapter 6. We will read the chapter first, and then we'll jump right in. Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flocks in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, he feeds his flock amongst the lilies. O my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army of banners. "'Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. "'Your hair is like the flock of goats going down from Gilead. "'Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, which has come up from the washing. "'Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. "'Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil.' There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, and the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughter saw the daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praise her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed before I was even aware my soul had made me as a chariots of my noble people. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite as if it were the dance of the two camps? Now, if you have not been with us, through the previous five chapters, it's not necessary to know them to be with us here today, but it, it will help you because each chapter has been building into the next. And there is a bit of a story that is going on. And today I haven't really been titling the chapters, but if, if I was, I was, I would call today's one of, uh, in, inspiration, uh, inspiring others. Uh, that's, probably what I would I would title this one for today but we begin with where is your beloved gone o fairest among women where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you these are the daughters of Jerusalem speaking here and we pick up from chapter 5 in chapter 5 the bride and we are looking at this from the interpretation of the bride of Christ and Christ the relationship between the church and Jesus And so we had this amazing description of Jesus from the bride and the bride had not responded to her call and had come to the door too late and the groom has gone and she had gone looking for him in the city. And this again goes to an earlier chapter where we talked about what does the city represent? It represents the world, the worldly philosophies, the ways of man. And and she got beat up by the watchmen, and the watchmen were were religious leaders who are supposed to be keeping watch on the walls, but instead they're going about the city uh, with everybody else. Uh, these are religious people that should help you, but instead they they don't because they're they're caught up in the philosophies of the world as well, and they they beat her up. And they beat up the bride. And that's what happens when the, when, when the church, when we as the bride, when we miss something from the Lord, it's often religious leaders and religious people who will beat us up. Uh, and they, or they wound us by their words. And she's come to the daughters of Jerusalem. And these are the believers that are, they believe, but they're sort of kind of going through a ritual. There is no passion or real love in their relationship. It's more of a head knowledge belief and they sort of taunted the bride like what makes your relationship so great and uh, the bride gave this big description of how wonderful the groom is, how wonderful Jesus is and that's what we're picking up today because it's The the brides of Jerusalem saying, where is your beloved gone? O fairest among women, where is your beloved turned aside that we may seek him? And here after hearing the testimony of how wonderful Jesus is, how wonderful the groom is. Again, that was last week's, chapter five's discussion. We pick up here with them saying, we want to seek him with you. And here the testimony of the bride and talking about how wonderful the groom is, has done something to the daughters of Jerusalem, where they suddenly hear about the passion in the relationship, about how wonderful the groom is, and they suddenly want to experience this. So they suddenly want to seek the Lord with the bride. Verse 2, My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock <clears throat> amongst the lilies. Forgive me, my voice is about 95% back. Still a little raspy. Bear with me. And here the, the bride is responding to the request by the daughters of Jerusalem by telling where the groom has is, is gone. Because the beloved has gone to his garden. And we've looked at this in previous chapters. What is the garden? The garden is that spot inside your heart, inside your spirit, where you cultivate your time of communion, your time of relationship, your time of intimacy with the Lord. You know, in the beginning, God created Eden, a garden, as a place of fellowship with Adam and Eve. And of course, that was lost through sin and the fall. But as Jesus is restoring, he's restored in that garden. But that garden is not being restored in a physical location we are the temple. The garden or that holy spot is inside you and I, you and me. That's where the garden is. And so the bride responds, if you're going to seek him, he's in the garden and the bed of spices. And of course, I'm not going to go over all the different spices, all the different meanings, but this has to do with the character qualities of God. And he's got a whole bed. Of his character, the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. You know, he's gone to that place where he feeds his flock in the garden. You see, God feeds us that communion time with Him. We talk about communion. We're not talking about crackers and juice. Those crackers and juice you do in church—that bread and wine, that whatever tradition you you do. Those substances are symbolic. Of the the fact that we're supposed to feed, have this intimate fellowship time with the Lord. Our dependence is upon him. We need him to wash us with his blood. His body was broken and beaten. We need to be reminded of that. We need to feast upon him. And he feeds us in this in this spot of intimacy inside us, spirit to spirit. And the bride says this, and then she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. This point of relationship. And then you know, he feeds his flock among the lilies. And we saw that in chapter 1. You often hear the lily of the valley, and people want to associate that with Jesus, but that's actually the bride. The bride is the lily in the valley, because he's tending the lily. In the valley. He's taking care of the lily in the valley. The lilies represent us as believers. The flock is us as believers. You realize that the lilies are growing in a valley and they're surrounded by thorns. And we see that even in the parables of Jesus about thorns wanting to, 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 to creep up amongst the believers. Those are the cares of the world. But God feeds us in the midst of all the cares in the world, of, of, of everything about what are you going to do? What are you going to do? God provides and takes care of us. He feeds us there and he cultivates us and he makes us something. We're not thorns, we're lilies in the midst of all this. Now something interesting about I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We're seeing a progression of maturity happening here in the song. You see in chapter two, verse 16, it was my beloved is mine and I am his. Again, it's, this thing about, you know, Christ is ours alone, but the relationship is about our pleasure because it's you know, he's he's mine and I and he is there's a lot of that I and my involved in it. Here in chapter six, verse three, it's something I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a deeper relationship here. There's this point of instead of me, 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 it's this now us, us. And next week, when we look in chapter 7, we're going to see it again. It's going to say, I am my beloveds, and his desire is towards me. Suddenly, all this my stuff, it suddenly becomes all about him and his desires. And that's something that comes with maturity. We move on to verse 4. Oh, my love, you as beautiful as tears, That lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army of banners. Now the voicing is switched. This is no longer the bride speaking. This is the groom. This is the bride. This is Jesus, the 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 bridegroom speaking, and he's telling the bride about herself. You know, he goes, "Oh, you are as beautiful as Tirza." What's Tirza? Well, if you're an old Ben Hur fan, you immediately think of, "Oh, that's Ben Hur's sister from the old movie Ben Hur." No, this is not what that is. Tirza was a city. It means, the name means pleasant, delightful, to be pleased with. It was one of the royal cities of the ten tribes of Israel during the time of the divided kingdom. It wasn't the capital of the ten tribes, but it was a royal city. In other words, it was a very important city and one of the tribes where a lot of the royalty would live. But it wasn't a capital, but it was a very pleasant, delightful city and what's interesting about tears of the city of Tirza, is that it was a city that was built on a hill and was quite visible visible to the world around it you know jesus talked about that as a church we are a city on a hill in other words we should be something the world can look at and we should be pleasant and, of course, Jesus says, you're, you are you're as beautiful as Tirzah. Then he goes, as lovely as Jerusalem. And, of course, we know what Jerusalem, what Jerusalem is. That's, that's the, the the city, not just in Judah, but for all of Israel, for Judah. It's the city of promise. It's the promise of eternity. It's God's chosen place where God and man can be together. And, again, here's the church. And we're like Tirzah. We're up on a hill. We're pleasant. We can see us, especially The 10 northern tribes were lost. They were filled with lost people most of the time. So it's, we're supposed to be visible and beautiful, pleasant to the lost. But we're also his chosen place like Jerusalem. We, we, we are, we are the people of promise where he's promised of eternity, where he's going to live with us forever. And then as awesome as an army with banners. You know, the bride of Christ, we are a spiritual army and we function under his banner. Of course, his banner is love. That is over us. And, and so here are his banners, his name is upon us, but we are, we are supposed to be a spiritual army that we, we, we face darkness. We face the, the the powers of darkness. And we do that with the name of the Lord over us. Verse five, turn your eyes away from me for the, for they have overcome me. Now we talked about this in one of the earlier chapters when the when the groom talked about he is overwhelmed with delight when we look upon him. And there's nothing that pleases the Lord when we turn. And know how do we put our eyes on him? Well, we we turn to him in prayer, we turn to him to talk to him. We turn to we, we we acknowledge his presence. The New Testament tells us that we should fix our eyes upon Jesus. But here he says, Turn your eyes from me, they've overcome me. This is where, if you've ever been with someone that you, you just really love, and they're just staring at you, and they stare at you so much, it, it's almost bothersome, and you ask them, quit staring at me, but in reality, you actually don't want them to quit staring at you, but the the intensity of their look is such that it's just overcoming you, and you you, you, you can't take it. You, you want them to turn away, but you really don't, and that was... Sort of the, the idea here. Now, I saw in a commentary that one person has, had brought up Acts chapter one when Jesus is ascending in the clouds and the angels told the disciples to start, stop looking up at him. And this commentator said that perhaps if they continued looking, that Jesus would have been overcome with love and been unable to leave his disciples. Um, that's a commentary that's not something from the bible but i think the idea that the love of god is so intense um that he has for us that there's times he asks us to do things um because his love is so intense he does he's not gonna undo his plans because he gets overwhelmed with emotion that's that that's not what god's gonna do but even in the garden um There's always some confusing things about Genesis, those those first three chapters after the fall, when Adam and Eve sin, and the Father really speaking to the Holy Spirit, is like we can't let man stay in the garden, because they've eaten the fruit, they have sinned, they're fallen, and it says we can't let them eat from the tree of life, they'll live forever. And so the Holy Spirit becomes a flaming sword, and drives them out of the garden, and you learn in Revelation that Jesus is the tree of life. And at the end, uh, we, it, we, it says in Revelation that we get to eat from the tree of life. And of course, that, that's Jesus and we, we partake of eternal life. We live forever. So there's an interesting play there in Genesis about really the father saying in this moment of sin that he doesn't want us to live forever in our sin because Jesus hasn't paid the price yet. But he's like going, but we don't want him to get to Jesus because his love for his bride is as such that he'll, he'll be overcome. Again, it's just this idea. I mean, it's not that God's going to do something wrong, but it's just this, it's trying to convey the intense love that God has for us. He's trying to, to get this, our understanding of how much it is he loves his bride. Verse 5, your hair is like a flock of goats going down the Gilead. This is a repeat that has happened earlier uh, in the Song of Solomon, chapters 1, chapter 2. And of course, we talked about the hair is a symbol of separation to God. We talked about the Nazarites were uh people that made a special vow to the Lord where they were going to separate themselves and be dedicated to the Lord, almost like a Like, like you know, they're not a Levitical priest, but you want to dedicate a year of your life to the Lord. So you'd go to the temple and you'd make this vow to the Lord and you'd become a Nazarite for that year or for however long a period of time you set. It's for a set period of time. And then when you make this vow, you would shave your hair and it would be burned on the altar. And then you would not allow a razor to touch your hair again through the entire vow. And of course, Samson, was supposed to be a Nazarite from birth. And so we all read the story about Delilah fooled him and cut his hair off. He lost his strength. His strength really wasn't about his hair. It was about the broken vow that he was supposed to be a Nazarite set apart for his life. And he broke all the points of the vow and the hair was the very last one with the razor. And so he had no more vow, but the Lord, his vow was broken. And so the spirit of God left him. Um, uh, John the Baptist was a Nazarite from birth as well. And so there was that the, the hair is that separation. So here her hair is like a flock of goats coming down Gilead. Um um Gilead was was a city uh northern trial and the northern tribes um east of uh Galilee is in quote Samaria with the ten tribes um it was known for the healing bombs that they made there um, maybe you've heard the, you know, the, the bomb of Gilead. It was a, it was a healing bomb. It was uh, a bomb's like a, an ointment that you would make to help with burns or cuts or produce healing. And so, uh, Gilead was also the place where they would keep sacrificial animals. So when they needed a scapegoat or they need a sacrificial lamb, they'd go to Gilead to get it. And so that's why there were goats there. And so the idea is the shepherd's gone out to, to get a goat for, a sacrifice and he he's just calling he calls the goats and suddenly they coming down out of the mountain and so the idea is that that there's a separation to god um um to bring strength covering and obedience to you you know it, it and 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 it's a beautiful sight that is coming down and bringing healing to life um again that's what the lord is saying my bride is like my bride is separated to me you know, she's she's got covering, uh she's got strength and obedience to her, and she's like a healing bomb. Not a healing bomb to him, but a healing balm to others. Verse six, your teeth, and this is talking about the bride's teeth, are like a flock of sheep, which have come up from the washing everyone bears twins and none of them are barren. Now I know you're like one, well, why does teeth have to do like be like sheep? Well, what do you do with teeth? You eat. You you eat. You consume things. And so here, are your teeth that eat and consume are suddenly, well, they're like sheep. <clears throat> and sheep can consume the word. Uh, they partake of things. Um, they're like sheep clean from washing. Of course, sheep, God's people are sheep. Clean from washing means that we we've been we've been sanctified. We've been cleaned of our sin. That the part about bearing twins is the sheep aren't having baby twins. It means that the, your teeth are twins. And technically, in your mouth, you have two of every teeth. You have one on the top, and its twin is on the bottom, or vice versa. If one on the bottom, its twin is on top. So there's there's a, there's a double of all your teeth, and this is none are missing. It's full and complete. And of course, with your, so there's this, there's this cleansing. And of course, not just to consume the word, but with your teeth, you, you, you speak, you speak these things out to the world. Your temples are like a piece of pomegranate. Now we talked about the temples. They represent your mind. And again, this is a repeat from one of the earlier verses where we, we went into this. So I don't want to go into it again, but again, a little bit of review. Those pomegranates. We talked about what a pomegranate represents. When you open it up, those little seeds are like jewels or gems. There's this beautiful interior. So our mind is like that. And there's the, the pomegranate. You don't see the beauty until you cut it open. And it means that there's there's something inside us, our, our mind. There's a beautifulness to our mind because it, it's it's on the Lord now. In verse verse 8, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins Without number. Uh, This one here is talking about these are various levels of relationships to the king. Now, you know, Solomon had like a thousand queens, you know, and 700 or 300 concubines. And and so he had a lot. And So whether this was written earlier before he acquired all that or not. But we're looking at this as the bride and Christ. So we have to understand this is talking about relationships to the the king and the king had many queens, many concubines and then virgins without number. Well, virgins did not know the king. They did not spend any intimate time with the king, hence their virgins. Concubines were women that were spending time with the king but they weren't married. They couldn't see the king when they wanted. They had to wait till they were summoned. They have Obviously more relationship than the virgin, but they just can't see him whenever. Now the queens have access to the king. There's there's the covenant relationship of a marriage there, they have access. But then it goes on to to say when you look at that, um if you go on down a little further in verse nine, he says um You're the only one. You're the only one. My dove, my perfect one is the only one. In other words, you may be queens, but his bride, oh no, no, she's the only one. Um, We see the same thing with Jesus. Levels of spiritual intimacy with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, here's Jesus. At his ascension... Uh, Well, number one, you had the multitudes. You had multitudes of people that came out to see Jesus. Multitudes, thousands upon thousands were following Jesus. At the ascension, he had 500 disciples. I know sometimes people try to nail down Jesus only had 12 disciples or a few disciples. He had hundreds of disciples. He had 500 at his ascension. In the upper room that actually obeyed him from the ascension, there was 120 120 obeyed him and went to wait till they received power from on high. Of those 120, he had his 12 disciples. And of course, Judas, one of the, one of them actually betrayed him. So it's really just 11 disciples. But during his ministry time, he had 12. And of those 12 that traveled and lived with him and everything, he had three, three, Peter, James, and John, who he would take aside and reveal deeper secrets with deeper things but then he had one disciple that he loved and of course that was john he was called the the, he was he was called the disciple that jesus loved um and so that was the one that was really close to him and so we see even in heaven you see seraphim cherubim archangels 24 elders there's different levels of intimacy when you go to a church, there are be people in a church that are like a virgin. They've actually never experienced God. They're going through the motions, but they've really never encountered God. Then you've got some people there that are like a concubine. Um, they go to church once a week to have an experience with God. Their their spiritual time is once a week, and they're like a concubine. Um, but then you've got a queen, and this is a person that has access to god they can go to god and they and you know and, and and have time with them they don't they don't have to wait on god or wait for a point in time they can go anytime but then there's you when god looks at you and goes oh but but you're the one and only and see this is the wonderful thing about god is that you need to understand what he loves us all but he loves you it's special and we need to we need to understand that that you know and i was trying to explain this to the group i was teaching this to on sunday when you go there and and it's like we're all worshiping god together but you know god looks at me and he he loves me i'm i'm special i'm the one and only and th- then i pointed to someone else and i said but you know what he loves you you're special you're the one and only and you know what you all of us if if you want to be the one and only <clears throat> excuse me if you want to be the one and only, be the one and only. See, he's made the way. You don't have to be a virgin. You don't have to be a concubine. And really, you can even be more than a queen. You, you can be that special one. And he can do that with all of us. Or he can do that with a few of us. It's a, it's a level of intimacy that he's invited you to. And that's, and that's the, that's the greatest thing about him. Now, verse nine goes on this a little bit. My dub, my perfect one is the one and only, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her, the daughters who saw her call her blessed, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. This is, when I, and when I read this, I think of, I think of Joseph. Jacob had 12 sons, but Joseph was his favorite. And I know today, uh, there are many women, there are many fathers that have lots of children, they love them all equally. You're not supposed to have a favorites, but in a way, God has a favorite. And the idea this is trying to say is you can be the favorite. You are the favorite. God wants us. He doesn't want us to be arrogant and walk around like, "Ah, God loves me more than you, but he wants you to have that type of security. God loves me more. God loves me more. It's okay. He loves you. His love for us is so intense. It's okay. And you know, he can have that relationship with everyone in a church. And when I say that, you have to understand, when you're there worshiping God, it feels like it's just you and him because he can do that. He's big enough that he can be the one and only for all of us. But we also have to acknowledge not everyone wants to love God like that. There are some people, they want to keep their distance. I'm not here to judge them. And what does that mean in heaven? We're not called to do that. We're called to pursue to be the one, to be the bride. And of course he says, when, when you do this, the queens, the concubines, the people, people of the world, they see this and they call you blessed because you have the favor of God when they see that. Of course, the the dove represents the Holy Spirit. We also talked about how the dove only a dove only mates with one another dove. Dove only has one mate. You know, in the animal kingdom, some animals are just mate with any and everything. Doves don't do that. They only mate with one for life. And doves can't don't have peripheral vision. They can only see straight ahead. Verse ten Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So this now, there's sort of a change. This is the daughters of Jerusalem are asking the question, but it's coming through the voice of the groom. So yes, this is Jesus speaking, but Jesus is really saying what the daughters of Jerusalem are saying. And you saw this a lot in the New Testament. The Pharisees would think something, but they wouldn't actually say it. So Jesus would say it for them. Here, this is what was going on. This isn't the groom saying, you know, who is she that looks like this? This is the daughters of Jerusalem, but the groom is voicing it for them. And and because the the, the the groom has said this about his bride, she's the one and only. She's, you know, we've got all these queens, all these, these relationships, but she's the one and only. And so the daughters of Jerusalem, those that are seeking him are not saying, well, well who is she? And so he's like, You know, oh, she's, you know, as fair as the moon. Or maybe another translation would be as radiant as the moon, clear as the sun, or as bright as the sun. Um, As awesome as an army of banners, another translation says, as majestic as an army beneath their banners. Now, something about this, who who looks forth or breaks forth in the morning. You know, in, in the Jewish idea, the day starts at sundown. So, you see, the day is supposed to begin in darkness. And then as it progresses, the sun comes up and the light breaks forth. And so, the idea is that his bride is like the sun breaking forth out in in sunrise in the morning. It's It's the light breaking forth. She's as fair as the moon. Now, you know, technically speaking, the moon's not very fair. The moon's got craters and dirt and holes. What makes the moon fair is it's reflecting the light of the sun. And so here the bride is reflecting the light of the groom, the light of Jesus. And of course, we see the clear as the sun. There's this this brightness, this majestic thing of the, of the light piercing through the darkness. This is what he's describing. This is the church, is that the light of God is like bouncing off of us into this, Splendor that's like the sunrise, you know, the, the, the majesty of the sun. And then he says, and then it's a repeat. She's like this army with banners. And again, there's talking about the bride shining forth in darkness. Um, we're not just beautiful. We are a spiritual warrior. We're a spiritual beauty. We've been successful in spiritual warfare. We know how to overcome the powers of darkness. And that's by reflecting the light of Jesus in our life. Allowing this. This is what makes us beautiful and radiant. This is what makes us overcomers. Verse 11, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. So here, this is um, this is almost a, a good place of godly examination because this is the bride is speaking. Now This is not the groom. The bride speaks up and says, well, I went down to the garden of nuts. Um, some translations translate this sort of garden of nuts, the walnut grove, the walnut grove. Um, I believe we had someone Sunday that had a version that actually said a nut grove. um, but it could mean walnut grove um, as a translation, and, and at that time they would have uh, groves of walnut trees, and of course they were known for the shade. And people take refuge in the hot sun under them. But the the walnuts there was a huge economic thing with walnuts because the walnuts were a source of food. So they produced food. They would they could produce oil from the walnuts, and the oil they got. They could make soap from. And of course, soap speaks of cleansing and cleaning of us. The leaves of walnut trees were actually used in medicinal ways to aid in people's healing and the healing process. And so, um, and then of course, you can start talking about, you know, walnuts and the seeds. There's life in the seed. The seed has to fall to the ground and die to produce this stuff. And so, really, when you start talking about these groves of walnuts it's a place where food is provided or oil is provided what is oil all represents anointing um the soap for for cleaning that there's a cleansing that happens there there's leaves there healing that happens there there's shade there's refreshing and restoration that happens there so the bride says that she goes to this garden <clears throat> Of course, this is this place in your heart where she is receiving provision from God, food, restoration, anointing, cleansing, healing. It's coming from Him. And you see the verdure of the valley, and then that word verdure, which I'm slaughtering with my accent, forgive me, but it means lush vegetation, green growth. Um, and, uh, and so here in a time when maybe. You've got trials, difficult times in your life. The Lord has a way of, of bringing up lush vegetation around you. And it says to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranate had bloomed. Um, God has a way of birthing fruit in times of, of, of harshness, in times of trial. And this is what the bride sort of brings up because the, the Lord's saying she's breaking forth like the dawn. And the, the bride's going, well, I go there. Well, when? When, when this darkness happens to me. That's where I go. I go into this, 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 this garden, this refuge and where this lushness of God begins producing fruit in my life, you know, um, that begins to go. And then verse 12, before I was even aware, my soul had made me the chariots of my noble people. Now, a lot of Bibles will put a little star there because I, like the King James Version and things, uh, they, they they actually leave the Hebrew word there. I, I mean, nah, I mean, I am forgive me here. I mean, I deep. I sometimes speak so fast, I slaughter things. But um, that word there, it gets translated many times, chariots are my noble people. But... The literal name there that I mean means willing, willingness. So the chariots of my people is really a willingness of the people. And so here are the bride's like, even before I was aware, my soul had made me like this. In other words, that the bride saying she goes to this garden place. She doesn't have to think about it. She just does it. She didn't think, oh, it's it's dark. I've been separate. I just I go to this garden. I go to this p- this place of communion with him that I get all these things. I don't think about it. I willingly go there. That brings us into verse 13, where the groom and others begin speaking together, and they say, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, to return. Then we may look upon you. So here, it's the groom saying, "Oh, return to me. Let's let's go back to this place. Let's go back to this place where you and I are having this communion in this quote secret place in your heart, where all these wonderful things. And then the friends, the they want to they want to see this. Yes, bride, go to this place." Go to this place. It's almost like when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. When people come to you and they say, teach me to pray, they really don't want a Bible study. They actually want to pray with you. They want to see how can I talk to God and hear from him like you do. It's a powerful moment. They want to see this. You know, we can, we can see this. And then the Shulamite answers, What would you see in the Shulamite? That's what would you see in me? As it were, the dance of the two camps. Now there's really a lot here with those two camps. Because this has a lot to do with Esau and Jacob. Two camps divided. Also talks about when Jacob was coming back, he actually divided his household into two camps because he was afraid Esau was going to kill him. So he divided his own house into two camps so that if Esau killed one, he could live with the other. And, of course, the angel of the Lord came and and intervened for him and and changed him. There's also this reference of a dance in two camps. And, of course, the idea is these two camps are in conflict. There's conflict in these two camps. But the dance, what's, what's the dance about? The dance is about, you know, a dance expresses victory uh enjoyment uh you know it's 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 something that is a happy celebratory type of thing you don't dance in sadness you you dance in 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 a, a play in, in a good happy victorious place when david brought in the ark of god he danced with all of his might before it but here we see Two camps, two camps dancing. And it's sort of a dance of victory. And I can't help but think about if, if, you know, what is is this thing with Jacob and Esau and this dancing in two camps? There's so much about that. You know, Esau really represents your flesh, our flesh. Um, God hates our flesh. It's not. Really redeemable. And Paul talks about we war within ourselves our spirit and our flesh. And Paul says, my flesh makes me do what I don't want to do. But I do what my spirit makes. I want to serve God, but my flesh. And he talks about this conflict and how it haunts him. But yet God's spirit, my grace is sufficient. There's a day that is coming. What would you see in the Shulamites? There's a day coming. When we stand before the Lord, that he will give us a new body, a new flesh. And both of the camps, both of the camps will dance a victory. Right now, our spirit wars against our flesh. There's no dancing going on. But there's a day before the Lord with the groom when both of ourselves, our flesh and our spirits will dance the victory together because he's redeemed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for hearing this testimony, God, this this story. Lord, Father, I pray, God, that we would learn to seek you in this And the the place in our spirit that we would be restored and healed and anointed, that we would draw our strength from that place. Lord, I pray, God, that it would be a place that will speak in witness to those around us, God, like the daughters of Jerusalem, that they will see us going to that place and they will want to encounter Jesus as well, Lord, that we would be able to shine forth into the darkness, Lord. And God, I thank you that you're willing to meet us there and transform us and that God there's a day when we will dance a victory dance with you Lord we thank you for this and we praise you in Jesus name amen well this one went a little longer today than normal I apologize for that but I hope you hung in there I hope this is blessing you I pray that you are encountering Jesus and growing in intimacy with him you can listen to other teachings Other podcasts, you can find those at our website at www.christianimpact.net. Several different platforms that you can listen to those on. And until next time, God bless.